Jewish audio on Chabad.org. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchis Maser, Perik Asidi, Chapter 10 of the Laws of Tithing. <clears throat> we learned in the beginning of Chapter 9 that during the time of Yochanan, Kohen Godel, who lived after Shimon HaTzadik, who lived after Simon the Judge, the <clears throat> Bet Din, the Sanhedrin, the high court, did a survey. And they ascertained that although the masses are observant in the laws of Truma, the heave offering, the 2% to the Kohen, which biblically has a heavenly death penalty associated <clears throat> with it if one is not compliant with it. They found that people were being very non-compliant with the laws of tithing. And therefore, they instituted that if someone is considered, he established himself as a God-fearing meticulously observant Jew. The word for that was chaver, a scholar. Then we assume that this person tithes properly. But if the person does not have that obvious label associated with them, we assume he does not tithe properly, or maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. And therefore, his produce was given a name, Demai, which stands for, our sages say, Do Mai. What is this? We're not sure if this is grain from which tithes were taken or not. Now, although we're only talking about tithes, which, although important, do not have a life and death penalty associated with them, but within the Levites' tithe, there's also the Heave offering to the Kohen, the one-tenth of the one-tenth, or the one percent which goes to the Kohen that does have that life and death issue associated with it. So therefore, it's actually critical. So our sages instituted an entire system of double tithing, something that we're not sure it was tithed or not, for the scholar to tithe it anyway. The laws are much more lenient but it became, after that period, common practice. So that the scholars were assumed as being responsible in tithing. The non-scholars were not. And therefore, a scholar had to tithe again, just in case, with much more liberal laws, because we're only talking about a just-in-case rabbinic tithing. That's a good background as we continue now with chapter 10. What if somebody says, I want to become a chaver, I want to become part of that elite group who is reputable to tithe properly. If somebody accepts upon themselves to be trustworthy when it comes to tithing, in order that his produce not be considered doubtful, what does he need to do? This is the list. This is the laundry list of what a Chaver needs to accept. First of all, he must tithe everything he eats. 
and everything he sells, and everything he buys, furthermore, he should not be a guest at the table of a non-scholar because he's not sure what that person does. And in order to join this elite group, a person must accept, must publicly accept these obligations upon himself, in a public setting. And when reliable, trustworthy witnesses come and testify that this person accepted this whole list upon themselves, they can also testify to the fact that the person observes this undertaking. At that point in time, this person establishes credibility and he is now trusted to make the statement, or we assume that his produce has been properly tithed. Base two, kol tamet chacham leilam neman, someone who is a Torah scholar, is always trustworthy unless we know facts to the contrary. We don't have to investigate him. Uvonov and his sons, Uvnevese and his family, Vavodov and his servants, Vishte and his wife, his family, are trustworthy like him. Because we can assume that someone who falls into the category of Chover instituted that tithing be done responsibly in his household. What happens if a scholar, a Chover, passed away and we find produce? Can we assume that these have been tithed or not? Maybe he died. He didn't have time. He says, you can always assume that the Chover did things properly. Even if he gathered them that day, the day of his death. Unless you know otherwise, we have to assume that the tithe separations were made. And this is based upon a principle that we established that a Chover, a reputable God-fearing scholar will never allow something incomplete, produce that's not tied out of his domain, out of his hands. So whenever you find it, you can assume that it has been done. And a lot of halacha is based on this principle. If someone is a chover, if someone is a reputable God-fearing Torah scholar, we can always assume his produce has been taken care of. Now what happens when somebody crosses from one category to the other? Gimel, Bas Am Ha'aretz, the daughter of an ignorant non-scholar, a young lady raised in the house of a non-scholar, a Ishte, or the wife of a non-scholar whose marriage was terminated. Shenises Lechaber, she then went, either the daughter or the ex-wife went and married the scholar, or Viabde or his servant, Shenimka, who was sold, Lechaber, to the scholar. So now there's a transition from a household of a non-scholar to a household of a scholar. How does that transition work? Is it automatic? Do we suddenly trust them? No, because it's new to them, they need to actually make a declaration and publicly accept this upon themselves. Vice versa, Ovas, the daughter of a scholar, or 
a wife of a scholar, Shenisas, who then later married Liamoris to an ignorant non-scholar, or Viabde, or his servant Shenimkar sold Liamoris to a non-scholar. So now the person who was previously in the domain of the scholar is now in the domain of the non-scholar. How does that transition work? They remain in the established assumption that they do everything right from their previous life until we suspect that they don't. Furthermore, the son, or the servant, shall chover of a chover of an established scholar, who frequently would visit an ignorant person, an unlearned person, who's not established, they also have to accept upon themselves because they were accustomed to something else. The son or the servant of an unlearned person, who would hang around a scholar, and that was their background, as long as they're with him, they can be assumed to be like him, a scholar, but when they leave his domain, they are like an ignorant person, what if someone is not trustworthy, but one of his sons, or one of his servants were trustworthy, one of his family, so you have a son, a servant, or a family member who's reputable, like Chimimimen, who we can take from him, the Eichlin Apim, and eat by their word of mouth, the Einon Cheshin Ledabra, and we shouldn't worry. What we have parallel to that in our world is a God fearing, working Majdiach, a rabbinic supervisor who supervises a food outlet, and is responsible, even though the principles are not observant, but we trust the mashgiach to know that what goes on is appropriate as long as that is the fact that he's involved and he cares. So item four says, if someone is not trustworthy, but there is a son or a servant who is trustworthy, God-fearing, learned, and trustworthy, no problem. Hey, hayahu neman. If he was trustworthy, the husband, the father, the Ishtayinanamanas, and his wife is not, you have a trustworthy scholarly man married to a non-learned or non-meticulously observant woman. Like Khamimeno, we can take produce from him, no problem. However, we can't eat in his house because the woman is the boss of the kitchen. And she knows whether that which she takes into the kitchen is tithed or not. He knows that which is in the house, in the storeroom, whether it's tithed or not. She deals with the kitchen. What if the situation is vice versa? The wife is meticulously observant and reputable as being such, and he is not. So the opposite is true. We can eat in his house because she is in charge and she is reputable. Like my grandkids say to me, are you the Zaidi who lives in Bubby's house? I'm the Zaidi who lives in Bubby's house. The house is Bubby's. So if the Bubby is meticulous in tithing, you can eat there. But you can't go to the storeroom and take grain because that's business.
And now he says, woe is to the person who he himself is not reputable, not in the category of a chover, and his wife is. And there's a rabbinic expression here, poetic expression. I'll give a, 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 an approximate poetic translation. Woe is to one whose wife is meticulously observant and he is not. Woe is to him. Shame on him. Because in the, certainly in those times, the man was the scholar, and in his case, the opposite is the truth, the opposite is true, woe is to him. Shame on him. Six, now he goes a step further, and here's an interesting question. What if a God, a, a, a visually God-fearing man walks into a restaurant today and uh, eats there? Even though he may have ordered a kosher meal, but the guy watching him is not going to be aware of it. The guy watching him is going to assume it's kosher, which is why we have to be very careful what statements we make by our presence. And I'm giving that introduction because this is an interesting law. Six, a scholarly chaver, a reputable, meticulously observant tithe giver should not act as a waiter, as a server, or it's not in the party of an unlearned person, nor his meal, because people will see the scholar serving food. They're going to say, must be good. Unless he can ascertain that everything was tithed and corrected properly. The fecal, therefore. Because of this law, if somebody sees a scholar acting as a waiter or working at the party of an unlearned person, or at his table, the visitor can make the assumption that everything is as it should be. So the, this is an outgrowth of the previous law that he shouldn't be doing it if it's not. What if they saw this fellow who he was lunching, he was hanging out and eating with the unlearned people? Here, the meal is not assumed proper. Why? Because he's not working, he's eating. What's the difference? Because we learned earlier that under certain circumstances where a chaver, a scholar, is invited to the house of an ignorant person, he can verbally make statements of tithing in order to make the minimum demai tithe happen. And therefore, maybe he verbally did it for himself, and it's not a declaration about the rest of the meal. Whereas if he works there, or if he's visible as part of the management there, our sages say, he may not do it unless it is all okay. And this was something we learned earlier in the earlier one or two chapters ago. Just as we learned earlier, that a person may eat in the home of an unlearned person. 
and can rely upon the condition that he made. We actually learned this in the previous chapter. Uh, paragraph 9 and 10 and so on. Five, uh, par- paragraph 6, 7 and so on. So here we have somebody... Where are we here? So just as somebody eats in the home of an ignorant person, and he can rely on the conditions that he made, the scholar must also be concerned for his son, that if he knows his son is going to be having a meal with an unlearned person, he needs to verbally make the conditions that will allow him to take care of this from another source of produce, which we learned earlier. Even if his son is in college, even if his son is away, but that's the extent. The person has to do it for himself and for his son. But other family members know. The fact that the son of a scholar is eating at the meal of an unlearned person. We should not assume that everything is as it should be at this meal. Maybe his father made the proper conditions for him, which we learned earlier, can be done remotely. So it doesn't mean anything. Ches, moving right along, am ha'oretz, an unlearned person. Shenosan mo'alachover, who gave a coin to a scholar, and the unlearned person said to the scholar, do me a favor. Kachli agudas yerek achas, buy me a bunch of vegetables, a gluska achas, or get me a seven-layer cake. A gluska is a nice cake. A Danish. So here we have the scholar who, according to the Rambam, is going to the vendor who's also a scholar. And he does not have to set aside the tithes. Because he is only acting as an agent for the unlearned person. I'm sorry. What, however, if the agent, the scholar, exchanged them all? He now has to actualize the tithing and then bring it to him because it now becomes his domain. He's not merely an agent. And if the scholar was explicit and explained exactly what he's doing, and the Rambam explains, and the notes explain, that the guy actually told him, the unlearned person said, here's a coin, a maw, get a bunch of vegetables for me and for you. Get a Danish for me and for you. So if he says, I'll have two bunches of vegetables or I'll have two danishes, that's one thing. But what if he was specific and he said to the vendor, to the storekeeper, this bunch I'm taking from you. So this is for my buddy, the unlearned guy. And this one is for myself. So 
So the vendor, who's also God-fearing, knows. One is for the unlearned guy, and one is for the learned guy. The one he took for himself, he needs to exercise tithing. Why? Because the vendor assumes that he's a scholar, he'll do it himself. You don't have to worry about the scholar. The scholar will take care of himself. So the vendor doesn't have to suffer the loss of tithing when the scholar buys it. But but the bunch of vegetables or the Danish that he brought for that he bought for the unlearned other guy, here the scholar vendor must do the tithing, because we learned earlier what are the, one of the declarations that somebody who wants to become a chaver has to make, I will take care of tithing when I buy, when I sell, and so on. And if they become mixed, even the one in a hundred, he has to correct everything. And then and only then can he give it to the other person who sent him. And he points out here that the seller will not give him untithed produce for the unlearned person because he's afraid he'll partake of it without tithing. But he can give the scholar untithed produce because he assumes the scholar will do it himself. Tess, similar scenario. What if five different parties said to one scholar, Go bring us five bunches of vegetables. And he delivered a bunch to each separately. The scholars amongst them must only tie their portion. They're not responsible for the other portions because it was distributed separately. So I was given my bunch, I'm responsible for my bunch. But but if he brought a bag and he said, here guys, divide it, then the scholars need to tithe everything because they're responsible and a scholar never lets something out of his hand on tithe. Similarly, if an unlearned person says to a scholar, to a chavar, go, I give you my blessing, collect figs for me from my fig tree. So, number one, the scholar can snack from them at the level of snacking without tithing, because a gift is not a sale, he's not considered to have purchased the figs, which would have required him to tithe, but it's an intermittent snacking. Or some say, and he does have to give tithing if it's larger quantity, or another version, he doesn't have to give tithing. But if the opposite is true, the scholar said to the ignorant person, go gather. And another scholar overheard. The other one can eat. And it doesn't have to tithe. Because we can assume that a scholar never allows something untithed to leave his possession. And we can assume, what do you mean? 
How can you say he took tithe? We, 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 we saw that he didn't. We can assume that he took it from another place. Even though we also learned that tithing should be taken from this pile for this pile and not from another pile for this pile. So that would suggest that he took from another pile. In order to remove the stumbling block from an unlearned person, we assume that he did do this Tithing not on location. We move on to 11, a very central law in 11. What about when somebody feeds the hungry? When somebody feeds the poor? Because of the need to feed hungry and poor, we may actually feed them this uncertain produce, produce having belonged to an ignorant person. And the fact that this is a necessity to help feed the hungry, we have a leniency. However, and we have to let them know, we have to inform them. And the poor man himself, and the guest, if they want to <coughs> correct the tithing situation, they can. If they don't want to, they shouldn't. It's up to them. But we have the leniency of feeding the poor from produce that has not been rabbinically tied a second time. Again, there are many leniencies when it comes to this demise, this second tithing. Along the same lines, 12, the charity collectors who collect food for the poor. We learned earlier that there were people in charge of going door-to-door and house-to-house collecting food. They're allowed to collect food and distribute it. They don't have to be concerned with tithing. And the ultimate client, the poor man, if he wants to be meticulous, he should tithe. Yud Gimel. What about a doctor? A physician? Chover, who is a scholar? So therefore we know that scholars never allow untithed produce out of their hands. He had a patient who was very ill, not deathly ill, because if a patient is deathly ill, he can feed him non-kosher food, he can feed him anything, life and death. But he's seriously ill. He's allowed to feed him food from an ignorant person, which is untithed. He can place it in his hand, but the doctor should not place it in his mouth, because he's not dying. But if the food belonged, this untied food belonged to the doctor, he shouldn't even put it in his hand, because then as a scholar, he's obligated to make sure that it is appropriate. Certainly if he knew that this was for sure untied produce, then even it's, it's even forbidden to put it in his hand, because the leniency is only when it's demai, when it's uncertain. End of chapter 10.